0: Is art a representation of life or does life imitate art? Well, in Dominic Smith's latest novel, The Last Painting of DeVos, you may ponder that conundrum and whether we forge our own paths in life or lead lives that are a forgery. So, Dominic, welcome to 3CR.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Who was Sarah de Vos?
1: So Sarah de Vos is actually a fictional character who's based on two real painters uh, from the 17th century Dutch golden age. So uh, she's based loosely on the biographies of one woman named Judith Leister, uh, who was very well known during her lifetime, but was basically forgotten for 200 years after her death and was rediscovered in the 1890s almost by accident. Uh, she's also based on a woman who I think uh, she's almost a complete cipher from that age, and a woman named Sarah van Balbergen. She was the very first woman to be admitted to a guild of St. Luke, this painter's guild in the 17th century, uh, but none of her work has survived. Well, I was assuming she was actually a real person. <laughs> yeah.
0: This was what was going through my mind.
1: No, she's not. She's a fictional character, but as I say, she's based on some historical biographies.
0: Well, this leads then into the sort of research you would have had to have done sure. in that period. Because what we get, it's that setting in 1636, which sort of sets the background. You've, got, you've alluded to guilds already. Yeah. But then there was this whole commerce associated with tulips and things like that. <laughs> yeah. Did you have fun oh, was researching a, that period. I had
1: a great time. I mean, I, I lived in Amsterdam for a year and I kind of discovered the golden age up close. And, and there were a few things that really kind of blew my mind. <laughs> uh, one of them was the fact that there was this incredible outpouring of painterly product. And by most estimates, there were about... 50,000 painters at work in the the Dutch Golden Age across the 17th century. Uh, The reason for that? um, You know, there are different theories. I mean, it was this kind of confluence of lots of access to um, art and the guilds, really furthering uh, kind of the practice of painting. And so, um, you know, in the Dutch Golden Age, it's high, it's interesting, there were no great composers of the Dutch Golden Age, but there were many, many great painters. And, uh, you know, you could walk around in Amsterdam in the 1630s and go into, you know, a butcher shop or a fishmonger's, and probably you would find floor-to-ceiling paintings. Uh, so the Dutch, uh, the distinctions of high and low art that we kind of often associate with the art world really didn't exist for the Dutch. And paintings were very much of the people and for the people, as well as being, uh, you know, in these niche pockets of, you know, very famous, iconic paintings by Rembrandt and Vermeer and the like.
0: But they had to be, they were controlled by guilds in
1: mm. some way. Yeah, They were. And, and really to be a professional painter in the 17th century in Holland. You had to be a member of the guild. And so there were these, you know, the lost women of the Golden Age were essentially uh, these 25 women who were admitted to a guild. And it was very difficult to get into a guild. I mean, because they did include people like Franz Hals and Vermeer and Rembrandt. Every city had a guild. And I often think of the guilds as a kind of... um, the ultimate by local program. Uh, they advocated for painters' rights, but also in return they expected a lot, and the painters had to follow very strict rules to stay a member of the Guild.
0: Well, that does come into question later on in the story, but let's move on a little here, because really the crux of the novel is set in around 1957, Ellie Shipley and Marty de Groot. So uh, Ellie is in fact a an art... Art she's pretty- getting
1: she's getting her PhD in art history. So, uh, she has already done some studies in in art restoration. She's an Australian woman. Uh, She's kind of a struggling graduate student in the 1950s in New York. And so in a a way, this book is structured as there are these three different stories that orbit around the painting. So the book opens with this description of this iconic landscape at the edge of a wood, which like Sarah DeVos is a fictional creation, but based on several real paintings of the time period. And we follow that painting through time and we kind of look at the way it changes uh, these three different lives. Sarah DeVos and then Ellie Shipley and Marty grew in the 50s.
0: And Marty actually owns the painting.
1: He does. He's inherited the painting... Uh, through his bloodline, he he's kind of it comes from this old blue blood Dutch family uh, in New York, and so this painting's been in his ha- you know in his household in some form or another for a very long time, and it's stolen, and and this is kind of what puts him on a collision course with the person who's forged the copy uh, in in the book. Well, that brings up another layer. There
0: there is a third period, uh, Sydney two thousand, but we'll get to that because in some ways uh, this book. Uh, becomes a guide to how to forge a painting. (laughs) She peeled back the antique canvas with diluted solvents, working in small circles, one inch at a time. She saved the old varnish as she stripped it off, squeezing the cotton swabs into a mason jar. To the naked canvas, she applied a thin coat of fresh ground but retained the surface signature of the original. Next, she sketched with pale chalk before dead colouring with raw umber mixed with black. The actual painting was slow and painstaking. A week on the woods, a week on the sky, two weeks on... The frozen river and ice skaters, each passage had its own technical puzzles. The bright yellows flecked into the scarves of the ice skaters were oddly textured and she eventually decided on mixing a little sand into chrome yellow. After the transparent glazes, she bleached the painting under an ultraviolet light for a week and cured it for a month in the furnace room below the basement stairs of her building. She worked a spiderweb of cracks into the canvas from behind using a soft rubber ball. She used a spray gun to mist the picture with the antique varnish she'd set aside. A favourite dealer trick was to pass an ultraviolet light over a canvas, causing the oxidisation in the old varnish to fluoresce that ghostly blue-white apparition was a direct product of age. Where did you learn to forge a painting?
1: <laughs> well, a couple of places. Uh, there's quite a lineage of what I think of as art forgery manifestos. <laughs> and they're manifestos because forgers are often angry at the uh, the institutions of the art world. Uh, but more specifically, there was one master forger in particular, a guy named Ken Perini, uh who was a fascinating character because he'd forged all these uh, paintings of various uh, time periods, been very successful as a forger. Made a lot of money, but he was on the verge of being caught by the FBI's art crimes unit. Uh, and so, being the cunning fellow that he was, he decided to stop forging paintings. He waited for the statute of limitations to run out on his art crimes, and then, of course, wrote this tell-all memoir about it called *Caveat Emptor*, uh, "Buyer Beware." So I read this book and struck up a kind of email correspondence with Ken Perini, in which I asked him to, (laughs) to authenticate uh, the forgery methods uh, in my book. And so many of the the details that I use, for example, blue chalk marks on the back of a painting to suggest a previous auction sale, the artificial fly droppings. Um, The the trick of taking varnish from old paintings and swabbing it and putting it onto, uh, using a spray gun to put it onto a new forgery, all those are perennial techniques. Uh, And so uh, that was a real, uh, you know, that was kind of a a great resource to have uh, for this novel.
0: (laughs) Well, we end up in Sydney 2000 with the repercussions and Ellie now has a a position as an an authority and uh, Marty actually is contributing paintings to an exhibition.
1: Yeah, so what happens, I mean, it's it's not a plot spoiler to say that, you know, because Ellie, Ellie has created this copy when she was a struggling graduate student. And in, in 2000 in Sydney, she's really at the height of her career. She's a very, you know, a celebrated art historian, and she's curating this exhibition on Dutch women painters of the golden age. And of course, what happens is the forgery and the original painting of At the Edge of a Wood both show up for the same exhibition, uh, and so Marty De Groot is is part of that, and their lives kind of cross uh, again after many years of kind of being apart, and the circumstances under their you know around their relationship is very complex. Uh, but yeah, so so Ellie Shipley's life. Uh, She's come back to Sydney. She's always lived on the periphery, but this exhibition was supposed to be her way to kind of come back into social circles, but it doesn't quite work out that way.
0: (laughs) So we've touched on the three periods, uh, 1636, 1957, and uh, 2000. But then you've got um, virtually – well, it's not really different styles, but we've touched on the forgery – You've then got part detective fiction... And another part, emotional intrigue. So having found out that his painting was stolen, Marty embarks on uh, his own private mm-hmm. investigation. He hires a private detective. The private investigator is an eccentric fat man who lives on a dilapidated houseboat in Edgewater, New Jersey. Despite Marty's initial hesitation, he's retained Red Hammond for nearly three months now. Red is an old war buddy of one of the partners and the of... And the law firm uses him from time to time. A nutty slob who gets results is how Marty was sold on Red's credentials. So we've got part detective yeah. fiction.
1: I mean, I actually think of this book. Um, I mean, there's no murder in it, so it's not a who done it, but it's more or almost of a why done it. Uh, a lot of the story is about posing this this question of, you know, what are the circumstances uh, surrounding the swap of this iconic landscape, which hangs, which is a very odd painting to have hanging above your bed, it should be said. Uh, it's it's quite bereft, quite austere, very haunting. Uh, but there it was for many, many years hanging above the de Groot marital bed, uh, and it's swapped out with this forgery. And Marty de Groot doesn't, really even notice that it's been swapped out for about six months, right? Uh, so a lot of it is about um, almost what I think of as the the kind of psychic meaning of, of art, the way that we become very attached to art, especially if we own it. Uh, in doing research for the book, I, I talk to a lot of painters and collectors and people in the art world. And what you often hear uh, from people is that Atheists very often gravitate towards, especially contemporary art, because it's almost a kind of alternative alternative religion. Uh, Because you know there there is a way in which we inject a lot of belief and sometimes even superstition into uh, the lineage of paintings, the meanings of paintings, and the way that paintings intersect with our own lives. And so I was very interested in that idea when it comes to Marty De Groot and how. On the one hand, he thinks um, his life may have improved by the fact that the painting's gone missing, but yet there's something about his uh, disposition. He feels very indignant at the thought that someone has invaded his private sanctum and taken this thing that, you know, has been in his family for three centuries.
0: Well, this brings us to then uh, the sort of, yeah, uh, significance of the paintings. Um, Just to finish on the detective notion, it's not really a crime that has to be solved because it has its own resolution Mm -hmm. uh, which is not the conventional you're guilty, we discovered it, plot uh, concluded it's totally different. This is where we get into the emotional intrigue Mm -hmm. uh, which we will allow the uh, reader to discover for themselves. But as you say then, and I think this is where we can uh, round uh, things out the the significance of a painting, because this is where we get back to the fictional, as I now uh, have learned, Sarah DeVos, because there's another painting and that of a funeral scene. Mm-hmm. And um, this is one of which Ellie wasn't aware, right. even though she's an authority. Yeah, And the assumption is that it's a representation in some ways, the, the contemporary assumption of... Sarah's uh, loss or bereavement over her child, Catherine. But it's not.
1: No, it's, it's, um, and this is something that really fascinated me is, is you know, what I think of as the gaps and the silences in art history. There are all these missing layers. And even when we find, you know, the, of all the paintings created in, in the Dutch Golden Age, and they suspect that there were between five and 10 million works of art created and that only 1% of those have survived. But many of them have a signature on them. Uh, and so thousands of Dutch Golden Age paintings go up for auction every year but we have no idea about the lives of the artist attached to those signatures. And so I was very interested in the way that we, uh, as art, there's something transcendent about art. But the, the way that we create meaning for the art um, is really based on our own experience. We may know something of the life of the artist, uh, but we usually don't understand the exact circumstances surrounding the creation. So what the, you know, for example, the painting at the edge of the world, what it means to Marty de Groot and what it means to Ellie Shipley, and what it means to Sarah DeVos are all three entirely different things. Uh, and that, that fascinates me, the way that it's the same object, but all the meanings change over time. And so I think uh, the funeral scene is another example like that. Uh, we can inject a narrative there, but we actually don't know how it fits with the life of the artist.
0: Well, I don't think it's giving anything away be, uh, because uh, Sarah has been commissioned uh, to paint a village in Mm -hmm. many ways. And it's... a representation of the loss the village has experienced. That's
1: right. And so she. what's not known to someone like Ellie is, um, you know, th- at the beginning of the book, her last painting you think is at the edge of a wood, and then you come to discover there have been several other paintings since then. So what we learn in the course of the narrative is that she, because of some circumstances with her husband, she's had to go work for one of his creditors. And part of that kind of working off a debt Uh, is to complete this painting, which is really a a kind of way of memorializing a village that has been lost and abandoned uh, to the plague. And so, um, you know, Syredovas is always going to come back to, as every artist does, her own narrative, her own loss. And so even though she's paying tribute uh, to something that really is outside her own experience uh, like all art it's going to be through the lens of her own identity right yeah. and so that that's that's what I was interested in there is the way that those two things might intersect. Yeah, you call upon your own experience yes
0: so in terms of um, a literary convention uh, using art to represent life and things like that how aware because it it it's not it is and it isn't the sort of symbol um, that I'm used to or, the, or yep. the way it's used. It's slightly different. Yeah,
1: I mean, uh, you know, the, the touchstones for me are, are books and films that um, often follow an object, a kind of unifying object as a way of um, kind of creating a structure. So uh, Don DeLillo has this novel, uh, that's a great novel called Underworld, uh, in which we follow a baseball uh, that was used at this very iconic baseball game, and we follow thro- follow it through time, and we see the different lives that it's touched. Uh, and then you can think of a film like *The Red Violin*, where we follow you know a single instrument through time, and we look at the way uh, it's impacted different lives in different time frames. So uh, it's a it was a fun conceit. It was also a way of keeping the focus very tightly around. Uh, you know, when you're jumping across centuries and so many different storylines, uh, the danger is that it just becomes this morass of detail and there's too many threads. So the painting was the idea that it's really the the center of gravity uh, in the novel and it's the thing that kind of keeps us in orbit.
0: Well, speaking of orbit, then there's another image you've used, the Russians in space. <laughs>
1: What's going on there? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, in a lot of ways, I think of this painting uh, or this book as having three different golden ages. So we have, uh, you know, the 17th century Dutch golden age, the 1950s in New York. uh, And part of that was this moment of great American optimism uh, post-World War II. And, of course, you know, Sputnik was part of the russian side of that the beginning of the cold war uh... the race into space that the first animals that were sent up into space and so i wanted you know the very opening scene of the dinner party at the De Groot household when this painting is is swapped out uh... i wanted to touch you know i wanted to dip into uh, the atmosphere of the time period. And and uh, the fear of, you know, there's a line in there that the Russians are going to colonize the stratosphere. Uh, that was that was kind of part of the atmosphere and the air that people were breathing at the time. So I wanted to, to tap into that.
0: So it's not necessarily an image we should draw parallels with. It's more atmospheric? Or... I,
1: I think so. I mean, I don't think that novelists... I, I think that, you know, symbols, when they pan out... Uh, are usually provided uh, by the reader, what the novelist is trying to do is follow a trail of associations. And, and uh, so, you know, for me, it's really more about um, an atmospheric detail that brings a time period to life in the same way that the tulip mania craze that hit 17th century Dutch uh, towns, Uh, It's just a love, you know, it's a great detail that gives you insight into the mindset of the people at that time. Yeah, and
0: establishes the atmosphere and how things were working at the time. Um, Moving away from the novel, you teach writing in Texas.
1: I do, actually. Well, I'm based in Texas, but I teach in this low-residency MFA program. So basically it's set up so that uh, students and faculty converged uh, on this campus in North Carolina Uh, twice a year for a 10-day residency. And then the rest of the time I work with usually anywhere from two to four or five students remotely. So they send me their work uh, and I send back critiques and we have a correspondence over the course of a semester about their fiction and also they do some kind of critical annotation. So uh, I've taught in other universities, but that's the main program that I kind of continue to be part of.
0: Right. And is there anything in the wings uh, or in the wind now for the next uh, publication?
1: <laughs> I, I hope so. I'm, wor- I'm, I'm on the very early stages of a, of a new novel that involves early cinema. And in fact, later today, I'll be spending some time at the, uh, the Center for the Moving Image, uh, not far from here. I'm going to watch some great archival footage. So uh, there's a little bit of an Australian connection in it, but mostly the book, uh, I think, is going to deal with Uh, early, the kind of prototype for Hollywood in the early silent era from the 1890s to about the First World War. Uh, So I'm having fun delving into that at the moment.
0: Great. Well, Dominic, thank you very much for coming in today. The book is The Last Painting of Sarah DeVos, who is actually a fictional character, (laughs) and it's a publication from Alan and Unwin. So, Dominic, thank you very much.
1: Thanks for having me.